You're listening to an encore presentation of the CMAJ podcast. I'm in the ICU this holiday season and Joel is in the operating room, but we hope you enjoy this episode, one of our most popular from 2023. We'll see you in the new year. Hi, I'm Mojola O'Malley. And I'm Blair Bigham. This is a CMAJ podcast. So Blair, all of us have hopefully had a restful summer full of adventures. And across the country, most kids are heading back to school this week. They are. And so we thought it'd be interesting to revisit and update one of the most read articles on the CMAJ website. So the article is smartphone, social media use and youth mental health, which is a huge topic back when it was came out in 2020, and even more so now. And it's a comprehensive survey of the evidence that social media and smartphone use drives poor mental health outcome for young people. Jola, you have a kid. <laughs> yes, I do, Blair. <laughs> yes, Blair, I have a child. I don't have a kid. Um, I would say that, you know, when we talk, like he's young, so I'm not like overly worried about social media, but I definitely will say that, you know, he's, I can't even blame him. It's me. I'm um, an overworked single mom. And so oftentimes I just plop on YouTube. I'm not going to even lie. And I'm lucky that he just likes dinosaurs and horses. Um, and he's actually very good at self-regulating. Usually within 40, half an hour, he'll like, he still wants it on, but he'll just start playing with his toys. So I've been lucky in that aspect, but there are some times where, you know, I see other people and their kids are just reading a book and I'm like, Oh, I wonder what that's like when your kid just reads a book. So, you know, like what's always in my mind is, He's so young. He knows how to scroll, like he can scroll and find his favorite show. What's that going to look like when he's a teenager or when he's 10? And his and then like, are we going to what are we going to be talking about in terms of I can't say, well, you've you'll, you've had your iPad all these years and now he wants a smartphone. Am I going to say, well, obviously I'm going to say no, but I do think I'm going to struggle with saying no. Mm-hmm. And it's not just toddlers who are being exposed to new technologies like this or, or new for their age group, I guess I should say. We're going to focus on on teenagers for the most part. Uh, and while doing that, we're going to be looking at some of the harms they can face from overexposure to social media. Dr. Michelle Ponty is going to be with us to discuss practical steps that both physicians and parents and youth can take to help control their smartphone use and stay mentally well. She's a chair of the Digital Health Task Force with the Canadian Pediatric Society. But first, an update on the evidence. A study in CMAJ in 2020 reviewed the extensive literature connecting poor mental health in adolescents to smartphone and social media use. It described a variety of studies that implicated smartphone and social media in the increase in mental distress, self-injurious behavior, and suicidality amongst youth. It also found that there's a dose-response relationship and that the effects appear to be greatest among girls. The lead author of that study was Dr. Aliyah Abijaude. He's a psychiatrist and researcher at the University of Toronto. Elia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You published your study about two years ago, and it painted a pretty troubling picture for youth mental health. What was it that you were seeing in your practice that made you want to do that study? It's an interesting question because, in fact, I've gotten into this 
the whole area of uh, social media and smartphone use, not because I was ever necessarily particularly interested in it, but really because of what I was seeing. So my main area of clinical focus is ticks and Tourette syndrome, which seems completely unrelated to this. However, I also work in an inpatient psychiatric unit, an adolescent psychiatric unit, and I started doing that in 2015, not because I wanted to do it, if I'm honest, more because there was a high need for it. And so so I started working on the unit. And working in this setting gave me a frontline seat, if you will, to witnessing the rise and the dramatic rise, I must say, in youth mental health struggles in the past decade. I think I'm sure, Blair, you as an emergency physician have probably seen something very similar. I think anyone working with kids in any setting really will have been seeing that. It really has been overwhelming ever since residency. Everyone would just keep talking about how this is a new phenomenon. This wasn't 20% of the workload before the last decade. And it it really is crushing a lot of emergency departments and pediatric emergency departments and inpatient services. Exactly. Exactly. And, And so... You know, and in fact, this has been the focus from the medical system is we need to ha- increase access to care, access to therapy, mm-hmm. increase number of beds and such. And while I think uh, th- there's merit in that, I think what we're missing is asking the question, what the heck is going on here? And so this yeah. is where, as disturbing as this was, I also found it very intriguing. And I started, you know, like really trying to figure out what's going on among young people. So this is definitely a multifactorial problem. How clear is it that social media and smartphone use are major contributors to this multifactorial problem? So most of the evidence has been in the form of large epidemiological studies. There have been many different such studies in different settings and different groups, different designs, and the findings have been fairly consistent. The other thing is if we think of the the Bradford criteria for Bradford Hill criteria for causality, there are many things that tick the boxes, basically. There are studies that show temporal associations. So there are time lag analysis where you show that social media and smartphone use preceded rise in youth mental health difficulties. It's True the other way around as well. So there's a bi-directional relationship, but it is not as big as the sort of struggling youth spending more time on social media as it is of uh, spending more time on social media and, and, and having more difficulties. Um, there's also the another one is the dose-response relationship. There's a clear-cut dose-response mm-hmm. relationship. There's specificity to it. It affects girls more than boys. So, so even with the observational studies, the evidence, I would say, has been compelling. We keep on saying smartphones. What do we... Because, I mean... I'm currently on my smartphone to as my to help me with this interview. Mm. So when we talk about smartphones, what which part of the usage are we talking about? I always assumed it was just the portal into the social media, the immediacy of the social mm-hmm. media. So so I think this is really good, Jola, in terms of needing to clarify the specifics here. I'll say not all screen time is equal. Not all smartphone use is equal. So like we are using technology here. I happen to be at my computer, but could have been doing this on a phone. And it's not the same as some of the other usage. So so one one thing is, as, as you say, Blair, it's the device that allows you to interact through these specific social media platforms. Okay, so one is the social media interaction. That's one. But the other is the device itself 
has issues with it in terms of negative impact. So it's not even just the media itself, and the, it's the device itself. Mm. And I can even start off with that as one of the... Yeah, yeah, start with that. That's interesting. So, I mean, there are many mechanistic factors here or, or ways in which uh, smartphone and social media use can have negative impact on people. And But uh, the one that is probably the most robust in terms of the evidence behind it is uh, sleep, the impact on sleep. And this is not theoretical. There's robust evidence, even where they measure people's uh, melatonin levels when they're interacting with a digital media device in bed versus interacting with a book. And then people's melatonin levels are measured. Uh, So, for example, this particular study I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of where they actually measured people's melatonin levels they measured uh, and they measured people's sleep architecture and then they measured their alertness the following day and this was a randomized controlled study again and basically it decreased melatonin levels or delayed their rise it uh, delayed sleep uh, onset delayed the uh, REM sleep onset and then decreased alertness the following morning mm. so this is not just theoretical the, the the impact of sleep is very robust so for example I'll give you another one here where they randomize people into uh, three groups. One group is allowed to use their cell phone ad lib as much as they wanted in bed. The other group, the phone had to be off on the bedside table. And then the third group, the phone had to be outside of the room. Not surprisingly, the the condition where participants are actively using their devices had the worst sleep. Well, what's interesting, Hmm. even the mere physical presence of the phone in the bedroom had a negative impact. So those that slept the best were the ones where the phone was outside of the room. And, Good God. And, <laughs> Not just yeah. off, but out of mind. So, yeah, because for some reason, even the, the you know, it might be some conditioned association. Mm. It's a temptation to mm. check. So the empirical data is quite compelling at this point. And then c- coming back to the mechanism. So I would say sleep is a huge mm. one. Moving beyond the device, tell me more about what's happening on social media through those devices that is leading to this generation of distressed youth. Well, lots is happening on on these devices. So the medium itself has an impact because when you're interacting with someone through these media, as opposed to, let's say, face-to-face, where you get the real-time feedback in terms of body language, facial expression, tone of voice, that kind of thing, it can really make the interactions more tricky. So, for example, it's harder to assume negative intentions, like a lot of room for miscommunication. And then it's also easier to make negative remarks because you're not facing the person right away. So that's that's one thing. And then it can grow and blow into cyberbullying, mm. which we know is common, and and then, and then people ganging up on someone through the, uh, through through uh, so, uh, social media. So these are things that are common. It's it's easier to assume negative intentions, easier, easier to make negative comments, and misunderstandings are easier. Uh, but the other thing is, it's mere accessibility as a window to what's happening with your peers can be quite tricky because it's not necessarily a realistic window all the time. So for example, people will have a lot of posts about things happening in their lives. And they're not going to just post mundane things. They're going to post the highlights Mm. of their lives. Whereas you're aware of the everything in your life, the highlights, but also the mundane. And so it might make you feel like you're missing out. And another big impact is on body image. So people posting images that are unrealistic and then make you feel inadequate that way. Mm. The other thing is 
let's say some friends of yours, they go out and, and they don't include you. And then they're posting things from their outing pre-digital uh, media. You might have not heard about it even, not known about it. Or if you had known and then that's it, it passes. But now you're taking it with you to bed. It's constantly staring you in the face, literally. It sounds like a lot of what happens when youth are on their phones is a very passive thing. It's not like they're directly being bullied or harassed, but that it's more just the way they interpret what they're seeing in other people's social media posts. Is it fair to call that like a social contagion? Like, is there something almost yeah. harmful just about the mere experience of seeing what other people yes, post? Yes, that's a huge one, I think. And and then it's become especially apparent in recent years. So, um, you know, these days you will see a lot of young people who are coming and seeking care for one mental health label or another. Uh, they're self-diagnosed. They self-identify as this, that, or the other. And when you try to kind of tell them, let's say, you don't have bipolar disorder, you'd think it would be reassuring. No, it's disappointing. So there are many popular labels out there, um, autism, ADHD, even ticks and Tourette's. So this ties into my main area of clinical focus, which is ticks and Tourette's, which is another fascinating phenomenon we've seen in recent years, is there's been a dramatic increase in young people, in particular girls, not exclusively girls, but in particular girls, going into the emergency room because they're having sudden onset, severe, I'm going to put in quotes, ticks. They're not actual ticks, but they're very functionally impairing and very dramatic to see. A lot of them are getting labels of having severe Tourette syndrome, some of them being admitted and getting all sorts of fancy workup. And this has been a global phenomenon, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating, disturbing, but fascinating thing that's happened. And in the past, these kinds of contagious kinds of ticks could happen in little pockets, you know. So let's say in a high school somewhere, some girls would start to experience similar abnormal kinds of movements, and it would get a little bit of attention, and then it dies off. However, given the reach of social media, this is no longer isolated pockets. This is happening at a global phenomenon, at a global level. So, And we're seeing this kind of things in all sorts of labels. So in terms of the, the emotional contagion, social contagion, it's, it's a big part of what's happening. I'm just, I'm a bit like, I guess I feel slightly validated because every time I'm on, I'm on social media, I hear everyone say I'm neurodiverse. You know, us people with ADHD, I'm like, does everybody have ADHD? And so, yeah. but I guess I'm just trying to understand is why is this happening? Like, why does everybody want to be labeled as neurodiverse? So I'm just trying to understand what exactly, what is this? Like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. I think each of these labels, in terms of its rise among the young people, has its own story in terms of what's happening. ADHD is a particularly interesting one. And the other thing I will say, it's not to take away that these people are not struggling. And even those functional tick-like behaviors that I, that I mentioned earlier on also can be quite impairing. But I think knowing these things for what they are is key to because it guides you in terms of what's the best way to address them. So and so ADHD, for example, is a particularly big one. It gets a lot of attention, a lot of people self-labeling, and you can see how a lot of people are struggling with maintaining attention. So one is they're on these devices. These devices are distracting. 
their pings and pongs and notifications and whatnot. Good luck paying at getting your schoolwork done. They are designed to capture your attention, okay, and to capture to engage you. That's how it's basically the monetization of the of our young people's attention. And so they it happens they spend excessive amounts of time on these devices at the expense of things they need to do, schoolwork time with family, friends, physical activity and whatnot. So now they're falling behind, okay? Plus they're stressed because of the difficult social interactions and whatnot. Plus they're sleep deprived, so it's harder to focus. And then plus expectations in general in society, things keep getting more and more competitive. Expectations keep getting higher and higher. I mean, try to buy a house in Toronto these days, but this is just symbolically, but you know, we always feel like we're needing to do more Hmm. and more with less and less. And so... All of a sudden, you're behind, you're feeling inadequate, you're struggling, you're having trouble focusing and whatnot. And then you're bombarded with ADHD on social media, on TikTok. So we we did a study actually published last year where we looked at the top 100 most popular videos of, on ADHD on TikTok. So a lot of them are misleading. So first of all, and the other thing, the volume, the exposure these videos get is unbelievable it's out of this world so we did we when we collected our data the hashtag adhd had over 4 billion views not million i'm talking in the billions last oh. year was over 10 billion this year it's over 20 billion Jeez. views so just for you to see how much exposure the stuff is getting okay and you're looking and and then the algorithm is designed to give you more and more of you know whatever it's at more extreme to keep you engaged and now to add to this users get targeted ads from now these private companies, a lot of them online companies, that for a few hundred bucks will give you an ADHD assessment. And you can wonder, you have to wonder about the quality of these boutique ADHD clinics. And in fact, there's there's a recently, not long ago, there's a BBC journalist who went in the UK and he got an assessment for ADHD at the NHS, their public health service. He got a thorough assessment. He was told he did not have ADHD. And then he sought an assessment from three different ones of these private ADHD companies. He answered very honestly, you know, the questions. He only just did not tell them the purpose of the assessment. Anyhow, all three ended with a diagnosis of ADHD and and, and an offer of stimulant medication. So... So basically, this is this would be one story in terms of the contagion and how these devices and media are contributing to the rise of these. And the problem is, then it floods the system, and it's it becomes harder for the system to manage and give care to those that really mostly need it, need a medical kind of intervention. It's a missed opportunity to address the issues that are happening in the person's life that are leading to the struggles, whether we're talking about ADHD or whatever other struggles are. You're pathologizing your experiences. You're taking on an illness identity. So it's this is part of the problem of the, with with letting these labels run rampant, as seems to have been happening now, especially recently. Aliyah, this is fascinating. We could talk all day. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Aliyah Abijaude is a psychiatrist and researcher at the University of Toronto. It's one thing to know the risk for young people of social media and smartphone use, but it's another thing to know what to do about it. That's why we wanted to speak with Dr. Michelle Ponty. She's a pediatrician in London, Ontario, and the chair of the Digital Health Task Force for the Canadian Pediatric Society. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michelle. Oh, you're welcome. 
So let's just start off with what are just some practical steps physicians can suggest to parents to manage smartphone and social media use by their children? I think my best advice is that I like to use a very easy to remember 4M model that I helped develop alongside the Digital Health Task Force with the CPS. And one of the, the one of the M's stands for manage. And so managing screen time, we have to help our kids learn the appropriate uses of screen. So a three-year-old is not gonna not gonna know <laughs> sort of how to manage their time, right? That takes a lot of higher cognitive executive functioning. So you're doing that for your child. Sometimes. For kids, for, <laughs> for older kids and teens, which was the focus of this paper that we were discussing, is number one, keep tech out of the bedrooms. Mm. So this, if we think about a teenager with solitary, isolated screen time, locked away in a bedroom, that's very risky. Versus that same teenager that maybe doing the same activity, but sitting on the couch in a kind of a family mm. area, family living room, where the parent is in the vicinity. So the parent can observe, care, parent can notice, can ask, inquire, like what's going on? And just open up that conversation to help that child or teenager, whatever it is they may be struggling with. You can't do that if you don't know what's happening. So big tip, keep tech out of the bedrooms. Another way to manage, and this goes for your three-year-old, as well as older kids and teenagers, is think about developing a family media plan. And there's good templates available on the internet. A great one is through the American Academy of Pediatrics. And we actually have a link to it on the CPS website as well. And you can go into these templates and develop a media plan for each member of the family depending on their age, depending on the uses. For you yourself, you might have a plan that revolves around work-related activities, right? Your older kids, school-related activities, recreation, what kind of limits you want to put on there. So it's a really great way to manage. And so if some kids are maybe more receptive to this, I can remember probably, I was probably more receptive when I was a teenager, probably my brother a little less. So what are some ways that parents can set up the discussion for their kids? Okay, well, it's, first of all, start early. So start as early as possible. And even with young parents, I ask them to think about even prenatally, prenatal classes could consider bringing these discussions in. How are we going to incorporate screens and screen uses into our family life? But I think one of the most important M's from the 4M model is to model. So, so if an adult is actually modeling healthy use of screens, it makes that conversation just so much easier because it's happening in the moment, right? Whether, again, you're a physician or a parent or if you're both, we all have to take a kind of a long, hard look at our own habits and educate ourselves on the effects that it's having on us for better or for worse, right? Before we can sort of open up that conversation with our kids. And we actually need to learn how this stuff works. Like, like parents have a hard job. We're making healthy meal plans and buying bike helmets and making all these safety plans and mm -hmm. toy regulations. And now we have to learn all about this screen use and privacy settings. But 
it's so important to educate ourselves so that we can then have those conversations with our kids. So I know that when I hang out with my nephews, they're using their, they don't have smartphones, but they have their tablets. And it's not just like, they're not just playing video games on it. They're socializing. This is how they talk. They're talking mm-hmm. over their video games or, and they're not really into Snapchat yet, but you know, as people are getting older, they're talking over Snapchat and, and this is how they connect to the, with their peers. So how do we limit the use of the smartphone at, or, or iPads without limiting the opportunities for them to actually connect with each other? This is a fantastic real life question because it's not the screen itself that's inherently risky, right? It's actually how we're using it. And so you gave a great example. These kiddos, your nephews, are using the screen for a healthy purpose. They're socializing with friends, right? And so most kids will socialize with their offline friends online as well. That's the most way they use it to socialize. They're actually friends in real life. And that's important. So if it's a social use, which is the one that you just gave, if it's an educational use, hey, when we were all in lockdown through the pandemic, we all had to educate our kids online. Great use of the screens, right? Thankfully, we had that. And then active uses, you know, some of those apps that you can use to download information and go out and explore nature or like a a hiking app, the uh, geocaching, even like WeFit, all of those active uses. So if it's a social use, an educational use, or an active use, then I think then we can teach our kids that it's not the screen that's causing the problem. It's like choosing how we're using it. Can I dig into that a little bit? Because it seems like the benefits of social media around socialization are are blended with the harms of like passively seeing other people's excellent lives and excellent bodies and then internalizing how yours might not be as good. What are some of the early signs that we can watch out for that kids might be becoming distressed by their social media use? Because I can't see us being able to carve out the black and white. This is what we want you to use your phone for. This is what we want you to avoid. So what are those warning signs that make us go, okay, we're not getting it right. We're not using our phone ideally here. We're starting to see some harms come up. Oh, absolutely. It's such a gray area. And and there is really no one size fits all, right? Each child, teenager is impacted differently. I, I ask parents to really monitor their child's mood. And that's an early indicator of problematic screen use, problematic social media. So are they more irritable than normal? Um, Are you finding that there's oppositional behaviors around screen limits? Mm. Are they really upset and angry and frustrated when they can't access their screen time? So those are all signs of potential problematic screen use. But most kids will display those signs at any given time. And it doesn't actually necessarily mean it's going to be a problem or it's become an addiction like that's sort of out there. But it just means, hey, there might be some red flags. I think the biggest red flag for parents is the screen use or the social media actually interfering 
with other healthy routines, okay? And so those other healthy routines that we would expect any teenager to kind of move through their 24-hour day would be sleep, huge one, right? Teenagers, they need 10 to 12 hours of sleep, right? Are they getting it? No, They need not. that much sleep? <laughs> teenagers, the recommendation for teenagers is at least minimum eight hours, but most teens need nine, 10 hours. But the point is, is that it's a big chunk of a 24-hour day that kids need to sleep. Then school, right? Eight hours, getting to school, getting up and ready for school, being at school. Okay, so there's another big chunk of time. Then we talk about physical activity, right? So kids need at least an hour of vigorous activity a day, a couple hours of moderate exercise and socializing, social face-to-face interactions, whether that be over like a family meal, right, within family context, or, you know, an organized sport or an organized activity. So if you add up all those hours, it really doesn't leave much left. So if screen time and social media is actually interfering in all of those other daily activities, and if you've noticed, I've put them into S's. So again, it's easy to remember. Sleep, school, social, and sports. Really easy to remember. Those are the daily routines that we really need to reinforce. And then the additional recreational screen time can fit in afterwards. So do you think physicians should be proactive raising these issues with parents? 100%. In fact, the community pediatricians and family physicians, nurse practitioners across Canada will use the Rourke baby records for monitoring vaccines and anticipatory guidance and so on, right up until the age of six, those Rourke guidelines. And then there's some ones developed for adolescents as well. But we're actually um, adding screen time counseling to anticipatory guidance that should take place at every well child visit. Oh, wow. That's great. But often in my interactions with families, parents, kids, in clinical practice, I actually like to leave them with tips that they can use and start doing right now, today. So for example, your three-year-old child on the iPad, on the smartphone, you're handing it to them so you can get some work done. Make sure you've put guided access on the settings, turn it on, which requires a passcode so that you can set him up on an app and he can play it. You've curated his content and you said, yes, this is educational. I'm happy that you're watching this show or or interacting with this app. But then he can't then all of a sudden start browsing the web inadvertently. So guided access. If, If right in the office, I will take the phone and show parents how to turn that on. Try turning your phone to grayscale right? Instead of the color. I did that. I was miserable for 20 minutes. I was like, (laughs) no. (laughs) Right. It's less appealing. It's less amusing. It's less attractive, especially to young developing brains, right? Or teenagers that are just so enthralled with that rush of what they're seeing online. So turn it to grayscale. Give it a try. I always ask parents, try it out first for yourself, Try it out and see if it works. And if not, go back and reinvent the wheel. You know, we're not looking for perfection right away, right? We're just looking for progress. Are we moving in the right direction? And you know what? I always say to parents, lose the guilt. There is to be no concern about that. We're just trying our best. 
And it's never too late to start ever. That's great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Dr. Michelle Ponte is a pediatrician and the chair of the Digital Health Task Force for the Canadian Pediatric Society. Jola, what do you think? So, like, the first thing that came to me is that, you know, I know this was about youth mental health, but obviously I'm a surgeon, so slightly a narcissist. So I thought about myself. And the first (laughs) thing I realized is that I need to get my phone out of my room because I do doom scroll because after a day of work and parenting, I literally just want to empty my mind before I go to bed. Um, But realizing the effect that it has on my sleep, maybe that's why I'm always tired. And so I'm going to go on Amazon um, to get an alarm clock and get the phone out of my room because also I just need to model that for my kid because he does see me with my phone going to bed. He sees me Like, you know, when I wake up, he sees me with the phone in my hand, scrolling and checking email and maybe just creating a little bit of space and boundary about phone usage that way. And being the model is going to be good for me, Mm -hmm. but also modeling for him. And Jola, you and I have seen this in in our journalism training and in some of the media reports out there around child and youth suicidality, child and youth mental health, how mental health counselors at universities and colleges are overwhelmed, how the public school system is now facing challenges, and of course, hospitals and, and family doctor offices completely overwhelmed by this challenge. And I think that, you know, it was fascinating talking to Elias about the contagion. And, you know, I thought I was just turning Mm -hmm. into a boomer by thinking, okay, all these kids and all their trauma. But, you know, (laughs) it's, it was, it was interesting to see that, that this is actually is happening. And, you know, we're pathologizing so many normal human experiences and even addressing that part of it and being present. And I thought that Michelle made a great point is that if you're going to be sitting there doom scrolling, well, then you get to doom scroll beside your parent. And there's something Mm -hmm. to that because you can watch and see how your child is changing as they're doom scrolling. Be like, hey, what are you looking at? What's that about? Right? Because yeah, there's been a lot of theory around how how parenting is sort of maybe part of the problem and the solution to the youth mental health crisis outside of smartphones, too. Yeah, and 100%. And I think that us growing up in the 90s, and we all had like, you know, eating disorder, because we all read Cosmo magazine that right. told us that we have to look like Claudia Schiffer, or you have to look like Naomi Campbell, this other mm-hmm. thin person. But it was we weren't always bombarded by that. And then it was also kind of like, well, these are like older people, but now it's your friends are also part mm-hmm. of this, right? And so I think being able to be present and creating those type of boundaries that, okay, this is the space where we use a smartphone together, I think is really fascinating. Right. And I, I think will have a great impact. And also the grayscale. I've done the grayscale. I hated it. Mm. Um, but, you know, after this conversation, I might actually say, you know what, Jala, if you're going to spend three hours on your phone because you don't want to do anything else because you're trying to procrastinate work, then it has to be in grayscale. Hmm. That's it for this week at the CMAJ podcast. We look forward to our next season with you. And while we're at it, we'll ask you to like or share our podcast so that we can get even more listeners for the year ahead. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mojala Malay. Until next time, be well. (laughs) 